Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Have you heard the news? The Indo Daily is up for a Listener's Choice Award. Head over to the irishpodcastawards.ie forward slash vote. You're listening to the best of the Indo Daily, your chance to catch up on the most popular episodes of the year so far. Today on the Indo Daily. Depending on who you ask, he's the Queen's favourite, Randy Andy, a war hero or the Playboy Prince. There's a slight problem with 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 with, with the sweating um, because uh, I, I have a peculiar medical condition, which is that I don't sweat um, or I didn't sweat at the time. Despite stepping back from all royal duties, Prince Andrew is said to have almost three hundred thousand a year income. He owns a thirteen million pound seven bedroom ski chalet in Switzerland, pays no rent on Royal Lodge where he lives, whereas a twelve grand gold apple watch and when he doesn't want to wear that he has a 150 grand Patek Philippe on his wrist. Last year he spent £220,000 on a Bentley and like the rest of the royals he seems to have Range Rovers at his disposal. Britain's royal family has never been short of controversy but the fall from grace of Prince Andrew is on a different scale. His lavish lifestyle, dodgy ethics and questionable friendships have seen him step back from public duties despite denials of sexual assault allegations. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today I'm joined by Sunday Independent writer Sarah Cadden to profile the Duke of York. Now we rejoice that the Queen is safely delivered of her third child. Sarah Cadden, let's establish the basics first. Prince Andrew, ninth in line to the throne and the Queen's favourite. Apparently the Queen's favourite um, and now ninth in line to the throne. But when he was born as the third child of uh, the Queen and Prince Philip, he would have been second in line to the throne ahead of his older sister, Princess Anne. Uh, You know, it's often been read that his slipping down the the pecking order through his life is the root of his discontent in that, you know, his status has slipped away from him. What does it mean to be a royal son? I mean, we see what's happening with Prince Harry and and uh, the fact that I suppose a little bit like you're saying there, he's fallen down the chain of command a little bit as well. Is it kind of a parallel in some ways um, in terms of you're born, there's all this lavishness around you, you have all these resources, um, but you have a job to do as well, didn't he? Well, yes, but a bit like, as you said, William and Harry, it's that idea, you know, more, more obvious with William and Harry of it, the air and the spare. But, you know, what is the point of a a third child in a royal family? It is a, a slightly purposeless life and yet incredibly privileged and with a massive sense of entitlement. 
Also, you kind of hear Charles and William as though the heirs. They talk, you hear an awful lot about how they how committed they are to duty and that. And you don't really get that vibe off the way uh, Andrew has conducted his life. His seems to have been more, <laughs> I don't know, a pursuit of what his entitlement could get him rather than what he could do. Although he did go into the army um, as a young man and he did serve in the Falklands, which he kind of seems to have, you could nearly literally say, dined out on uh, for many years since. Being made to lie down in a ship is the most lonely feeling I think you'll ever get of being there lying on the deck with your hands over there just to protect your face, lying on the deck waiting for either a bang or the all clear. But in fairness, at the age of 22, he did see active service, something that uh, uh, myself and yourself haven't. And it yeah. did seem, but from the reports at least, that in that sense, he did carry out his duty with distinction. Yeah, of course, yes. And I, I, he, uh, when he came back from the Falklands, he was only 22 at that stage. That was kind of his, his peak teen heartthrob stage. He turned on the lights, the Christmas lights in Regent Street, you know, screaming girls and quite a fuss around him. And he was I suppose, admired at that point. It, it it can be hard on a person to peak very early like that. What do we know about his time in the Falklands? Well, he was a helicopter pilot. He seems to have flown as a kind of a decoy to divert missiles away from, from ships. It is active duty. And um, he went on to, to hold many military positions later in his life. So why, through all that period, it seems to be that the, the line established that he was the Queen's favourite. But why is it said that he's the Queen's favourite? If, as you say, he's the third child. We often hear about the middle child syndrome, but it doesn't seem to have affected him. How this favouritism is kind of uh, characterised in what you would read about them is that the Queen has a slight blind spot for him and he's seen out riding with the Queen. And, you know, they seem to enjoy maybe an unpressured, close relationship that she mightn't have been able to enjoy with her older son. Now, you talked about this idea that he was a heartthrob and that he had women falling over themselves essentially for him. He chose Sarah Ferguson. Anyone who remembers those kind of the early 80s and Diana had gone ahead of her as this, you know, quite blonde English rose type and had really won people's hearts. And Sarah Ferguson um, and and Diana were quite friendly. That she was kind of young and bubbly, and you know she she laughed a lot, and she didn't seem at all this kind of stuffy royal type. And people were quite captivated by them for a time. Um, but that they they married in uh, 1982, and. By um, they divorced, didn't divorce till 1996, but they had separated in 1992. So that marriage lasted 10 years, and they they had that initial kind of burst of popularity. But Fergie also seems to have burned through money quite a bit, and there have been several times that she has been in financial um, dire straits and has needed rather significant digouts. But yeah, the, the, that popularity certainly went off the boil. Maybe as Diana grew more popular, the really, you know, Fergie got a bit elbowed out. 
So she stays in the background, though, and we'll come back to that a little bit later. But after he returns um, from his service with the Navy, he takes up an ambassador role and actually starts to build up a lot of business contacts, starts to do a lot of work in diplomacy. But that comes in, even that, he manages to find a way to bring into controversy. When he took on that role, one of his first tasks was he went to New York after 9-11. So he would have been there, you know, representing his mother and the country and whatever. And he attended a party while he was over there, which really was seen to be quite bad form. And then he had, you know, connections to Azerbaijani politicians, uh, to uh, Gaddafi's son, um, Saif. He entertained the son-in-law of the ouster president of Tunisia at Buckingham Palace. And he also, money comes up a lot when it comes to Andrew. And he had sold one of his homes to the son-in-law of the president of of Kazakhstan. And the the, uh, asking price was £12 million, but the selling price was £3 more than that which was questioned at the time. The people who have worked them have said that he doesn't listen to anyone. And uh, I, I read a thing recently that said, like, courtiers and advisors were regularly told to roar at and told to F off out of his office if they dared to come in and, and question his judgment. So he, I think, imperious could be a, a, a word you could... A, could apply to him and very much um, listening to his own advice. His official title in that role was the UK's Special Representative for International Trade and Investment. But there is a piece that was written by a British diplomat in in Bahrain called Simon Wilson, who who was there for a period in the early noughties. And he had wrote a piece suggesting that the Duke was more commonly known among the British diplomatic community as his his buffoon highness. Yeah, yeah. And really, like from when he was a kid, that kind of, you know, stomping all over things and, uh, you know, being even maybe, you know, a little bit bullying seems to be a theme. And, you know, if you think about even the tone that he took when he appeared on Newsnight a couple of years ago, it was very much, the ma- his manner was very much of a man who expected not to be questioned, who's expected, you know, people to hear what he had to say and go, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir. And, you know, uh, that seems to have been a, a theme through his life. If that brash kind of character is is one theme, the other one, Sarah, listening to you talked there about his connections and uh, his his lifestyle is money. Where mm. does his money come? Like, what does a royal, a spare royal, earn? Well, he seems to. He, he's reported to have have about three hundred thousand pounds coming in a year, including a stipend from the Queen. And then he has a naval pension as well, which would be small potatoes of 20 grand to him. Um, But it has always been questioned how he kind of affords his lifestyle um, on that kind of money. For example, he bought... um, Last week, Sarah Ferguson and his two daughters and his grandchildren were over in his skiing lodge in Verbier in... um, 
Switzerland. And he bought that from someone who was a friend of theirs uh, for, I think it was, yeah, 13 million pounds. And the agreement was that they would pay it back, pay for the house in installments. This was a friendly agreement between them all. But the woman who sold it to them said that they failed to make the final installment, which was five million pounds. And that no matter how much they were asked, they just, it just, they never honoured the agreement. And uh, Andrew settled that final instalment towards the end of last year. It, it was just re- reported. And obviously people have said, <laughs> where does Andrew put his hand on six million pounds, you know? Like, where would he get it from? It's not like, you know, he has a job, you know, he's got a new job or there's something that's brought in some extra money. So, you know, there is that sense that he's always like, there's always money coming from somewhere. He also had a loan um, from a friend of his who who paid for him to pay off a 1.5 million pound loan from his bank. It was from David Rowland. And like, you know, it's always questioned, why do people give Andrew money? And how does he always manage to kind of scrabble together this money? And really, fundamentally, it doesn't reflect well on him, you know. It's a strange one. And there have been a lot of reports into the idea that perhaps his money pot is is dwindling as it is. But last year, apparently he splashed out on on a 200 grand Bentley. And there's the one that really stood out to me was a 12 grand gold Apple Watch. It's funny, isn't it? Because it is, it does really speak of such a sense of entitlement, you know, that nothing chastens him or nothing seems to give him pause to go, hold on a minute, maybe, maybe I should stop doing this or maybe this isn't the right, right thing to do. Um, You know, also, as you say there about the dwindling funds, uh, it has been kind of reported that Prince William isn't a massive fan of his. And, you know, Charles has this mission that he's going to streamline the royal family when he uh, becomes king. And that very much Andrew won't, was never going to be part of that streamlining. And there was always this thing that Andrew, um, you know, felt that... Beatrice and his daughters Beatrice and Eugenie weren't really bestowed with enough status within the royal family. He really feels that lack of status. And Sarah, all of that and that money and that lifestyle, it's really, it's sort of about status chasing, isn't it? And that brings us to his friendship with Ghislaine Maxwell, the the daughter of the press baron Robert Maxwell and in turn Jeffrey Epstein. Yes, in the Newsnight interview, obviously Andrew was really keen to to make it clear that he was friends with Ghislaine Maxwell and not uh, with Epstein, not so much with Epstein, who at that stage, you know, had been convicted and spent time in prison for soliciting prostitution from underage girls. I mean, now, uh, since Ghislaine Maxwell's conviction of sex trafficking, you know, that allegiance seems 
as ill-judged as the, as the interview itself. But Andrew very much wanted to emphasize that she was his friend and that any time Epstein had been to a royal, uh, been to Sandringham, been to royal, there was a shooting party. We've now seen you know, photographs of Epstein and Maxwell at the that private hunting lodge in Balmoral, that Epstein was very much there as a plus one to Maxwell, whom um, who was an old friend of uh Andrews. Well, I met through his girlfriend um, back in 1999, who, um, and I'd known her since uh, she was at university in the UK. Um, and it would be, to some extent, a stretch to say that, that um, uh, as it were, we were close friends. I mean, we were friends because of other people. Um, and I had a lot of opportunity to um, uh, go to the United States, um, but I didn't have much time with him. I suppose I saw him once or twice a year, perhaps maybe maximum of three times a year. So Sarah, the Epstein relationship was causing Andrew trouble many years ago, but in the current context since Epstein's death, the more recent trial of Ghislaine Maxwell, and these claims in the civil case uh, from Virginia Robert Giffray, it has pretty much destroyed whatever public standing Prince Andrew had left, didn't it? It did. And, you know, he made it significantly worse by doing that Newsnight interview. His manner, his attitude, his his arguments for why, like that I don't sweat. And I was at a Pizza Express in Woking and I remember... Well, let's just listen to that clip, because I think that is the one that people will remember most. Going to Pizza Express in Woking is an unusual thing for me to do. A very unusual thing for me to do. I've never been, I've only been through Woking a couple of times um, and I remember it weirdly distinctly. As soon as somebody reminded me of it, I went, oh yes, I remember that. But I have no recollection of ever meeting or, or being in the company or the presence. So you're absolutely sure that you're at home on the 10th of March? Yeah. She was very specific about that night. Mm. She described dancing with you and you profusely sweating (laughs) and that she went on to have bath, possibly... There's a slight problem with with the sweating um, because uh, I I have a peculiar medical condition, which is that I don't sweat um, or I didn't sweat at the time. Sarah, how many times I hear that and it still (laughs) makes me cringe. I know. And there were pictures of him subsequently in some of the papers, dancing and sweating. He had that expectation that if he said something, that Emily Maitlis interviewing him would say, oh, yes, Prince Andrew, that must be the case. And, you know, we know now that he traveled, he said in the interview as well, he agreed he had been on on uh, Epstein's private plane. He had been to his private island. Um, you know, he talked about going over there for a weekend to, to end the friendship in 2010 when Epstein had been um, released from prison. And he went there because he just, you know, really kind of suffered an excess of honour. And it was the chicken's way out to end the friendship over the phone. So he had to go to New York for a few days and spend the weekend in Epstein's house in order to tell him it was all over, including, though, a dinner party. 
you know, he did say in that interview that he didn't regret the friendship with Epstein, which I think was really significant. And what he said was he met so many people through Epstein and he gained so many opportunities uh, through Epstein that he didn't regret it. And it really, even though he made noises about victims, etc., you know, that was really significant because I think it said a lot about how he views himself and his life, that he, if he gained from it, then what harm? Ironically, he did, or at least his defence is that it was networking opportunities. And now, obviously, because of everything that has come out about Epstein and Maxwell, um, it has made him persona non grata. And even looking through the official royal website, all through every page that has the mention of the Duke and his biography and his work supporting the Queen and charities, at the top of every one of those pages is the fact that His Royal Highness the Duke of York has stepped back from public duties for the foreseeable future. So the royal family are very officially, at least very um, forward in, in pointing out that he is not working for them at the moment, at least. And he doesn't have very many friends or at least publicly very many friends and backers left. But what did strike me as as interesting in all of this is that Sarah Ferguson, his ex-wife, is still largely standing by him. Now, this is the woman who, as you said, Sarah, they separated in 1992 and within months, um, she was photographed in compromising photographs, shall we call them, in Saint-Tropez, where there was a Texan billionaire kissing her and sucking her toes um, without being too graphic for, for people who are listening. But Sarah Ferguson is really standing by Prince Andrew. Let's just have a listen. Knowing him as I know him, and he's one of the greatest men I've ever met in my life, and my best friend, and great father to my children, I just thought, I don't understand in this day and age how people can make salacious lies up, and how the media actually then write about it, and then follow on with it, because I just don't understand. This is defamation of character of a person that is the opposite to how he's being portrayed. So uh, Buckingham Palace put out a denial, and on his behalf. On his behalf. And that's how it works within the royal family. And, and they stand by that denial. There is no more... There's nothing more to be said. And I think it is just... Uh, it is just shockingly accusatory lies. So, Sarah, a court will ultimately decide what is truth and what is lies here. What happens to Prince Andrew if Virginia Roberts Schiffre's version of events, the claims that she was sexually assaulted by Prince Andrew when she was just 17. If she wins that case against him, what happens? Well, there was a story last week that that the Prince Andrew's side were willing to make a financial settlement in order that the case wouldn't go ahead. And for whether that was true or not, kind of wasn't, um, it wasn't clear. But what was clear was that Jufre's side said, we don't want the money, we want her day in court. So... I suppose you could like it's 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 a civil case that she's taking, so there there isn't going to be he isn't going to serve prison time. One presumes there will be money involved in a in a judgment in her favor. Does Prince Andrew have money if this happens and he is further disgraced by a, a, um, it coming to down on her side? Then are friends who have bailed him out in the past going to do it again? Is Would the Queen bail him out? 
you know, where where does it go? And where what is further disgrace for him? After Newsnight, he stepped back from all royal duties. That was that. Um, so does he just become this guy that you see driving around in his Range Rover in and out of the gates of Windsor and then, you know, photographed through a long lens, riding horses in the grounds with the Queen? Does he just disappear into the shadows? That was Sarah Cadden, writer with The Sunday Independent. I'm Kevin Doyle and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Tabitha Monaghan, recorded by Gavin Hennessy, with sound design by John Smith. Archive clips with thanks to Newsnight on BBC One, British Pate and ITV News. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.